Amen. Amen. Hey, everybody awake, alive out there today? Yes, yes. Uh, everybody recovered from their all-nighters, New Year's. Happy New Year. Hey, if worship didn't wake you up this morning, there's probably no hope for you at all. So uh, it's, it's good to be here together. Happy New Year to you. Let me uh, wish you that this morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I am uh, one of the ministry directors on staff here. Usually it's my privilege to be up here uh, leading our church in worship week after week. But today uh, I have the special privilege to be able to open God's word for us uh, together. And so if you've got your Bible, I just want to invite you to open it with me up to Luke chapter 12. Uh, go ahead and turn there, Luke 12, and I'll meet you there in just a second. Um, there's a lot of talk these days. I've been hearing more and more of it recently. There's a lot of talk about investments. Um, I just had a, a friend of mine in my community group was over on New Year's Eve and he was telling me about how uh, there's a bunch of guys that he's friends with that have this like text chain going and they've got this app that they're managing their investments in and it's kind of become like a fantasy football league type of a thing where they're like constantly communicating about it. But like the popularity and the accessibility of investments is at like an all-time high right now with the technology that's been developed and it's just people are talking about it a lot more. Um, now I'm not a I'm not a financial wizard by any st stretch of the imagination, but I think that I've like boiled down the basic principle of like what is a, a healthy way to be thinking about money and investing it rightly. And so this is it. I'm gonna give you this wisdom for free this morning. It's, you gotta make sure that more is going into the pot than what's coming out of the pot. Done. Hire me, I'll handle all your financials from this point forward, like oh, let's go. So no, it's that simple, right? We gotta be saving more than we're spending. We gotta make sure that more is coming in than what's going out. It's that simple. That's the, this is the simplest principle for what a healthy investment and what a, a, a budget managing principle would look like. But here's the thing about that, that no matter how perfectly we manage our budgets, no matter how much our investments are all accumulated and how much we've put in crypto or gold or whatever it is, it doesn't matter because one day at the end of your life and at the end of my life, doesn't matter how big our nest egg is, doesn't matter about any of that stuff, because one day where we're going, we can't take it with us. I can't take my, in, my investments with me to the place that I'm going to go after I die, and you can't either. And, and this is not, now listen, this is not from, like to discourage you from being wise in your investing or a wise steward of what God has given you, because in Proverbs 13, he says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so it's a good thing to be thinking about these things. But the thing about an inheritance is, is that what do you do? You leave it. You can't take it with you. But what if there was an investment that you could invest your money, your time, your energy into, that something that you could take with you to the next life and enjoy it in this life? And, and if that was the case, if there was something, such an investment existed that benefited you here and in the next life, what would be stopping you from going all in on that? Jesus today in this passage in Luke chapter 12, he's given us a very clear, foolproof investment strategy that is for both this life and the next life. And so we're gonna look at that today. And what Jesus is gonna tell us is that place that we can be investing that will benefit us both in this life and in the next is in him, in his kingdom. He's calling us to invest in himself. And that's the only investment that will never fail us. It's the only one that will never drop or decrease in value. In fact, it will only increase in value. And so he wants us to be spiritually rich in that investment. And so just like it's a wise financial stewardship here at the end of 2021 and in stepping into 2022 to be looking back and be like, okay, so how do we do it over the last year? Did we, did we spend more than we saved? Did we save more than we spent? He's calling us to do the same thing spiritually with our hearts and with our, our minds. Are we investing our resources in the right places? Did we give more than we spent? 
And so this uh, big move for us this morning, it's our first big move of 2022. We're gonna start the year off right. Here we go already. So it's the foolproof investment strategy that Jesus had offered us. It's this, grow rich in God by being rich toward God. So before we dive into Luke chapter 12, let me just pray for us this morning and then we will dive into this foolproof investment strategy. Let's pray. God, you are, you've been so good to us and you have given us so many things um, beyond what we could ever imagine or ask for or think of and we just thank you for that. And Lord, I pray as we open up your word this morning that you would reveal to us um, just the truth that you would have for us. God, you, I ask that you would speak to us, you would convict us, that you would shape us and change us to look more like Jesus as we hear from you and your spirit this morning through the preaching of your word. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so Luke chapter 12, everybody got their Bible open there. Um, I'm gonna set the scene for what's kind of happening here. The beginning of Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus is preaching and he's, he must be like preaching fire because it says in Luke 1, 12, 1 that there are literally thousands of people that have gathered and that they're trampling over each other to hear what he would have to say. And so right in the middle of that scene, we're gonna find ourselves in our text today starting in verse 13. So follow along me, with me in your Bible as I read. So let's read this together. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother, to divide the inheritance with me? Random. Uh, but he, Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, so look, he's turning to the crowd now to talk to them, not wasting the opportunity to teach, not wasting the opportunity to speak to the heart of man here. Take care and be on, gar- on your guard against all covetousness or greed for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now this is important here, right? Jesus is referred to in Acts as the author of all life. And people are all over the world are searching for what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose in life? What is it? And so if the author of all life starts a sentence essentially with the words like life does not, I mean, our ears should be perked perking up to hear what he would have to say in that, right? I want to listen because he designed it. He knows how it works. And what does he say? One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's a very clear move for us here in this first section that if we want to grow rich in God by being rich toward God, it means that we have to stop laying up treasures for ourselves. Now, there's a few important things in this little section that I want to focus on before we move on. And first, this man is called a fool. And the word fool in our culture kind of means like, oh, you dummy, you idiot. But in scripture, it means something much more has much more grave uh, implications than just that. In in, in God's word, a fool is often referred to as somebody who has no fear of God, even to the point of denying his existence. So by calling this man a fool, that was pretty serious accusation that, that is made here. But why? Like, what has he done to deserve that title? What did he do to be called a fool? What's so bad about building a bigger barn? Well, first, I want to make sure that we're clear with this. It's not simply because he was rich right? Um, It's not because he had an increase or because he got an abundance. It's not because uh, he just had this increase. Like God doesn't condemn us when we have a good year, right? And those are blessings from him. He actually gives those to us. 
But look what this man intends to do with his abundance. Look at verse 19. It says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So the plans that he had for his wealth says a lot about how much he treasured his wealth and what his treasure was in it being in his wealth. His treasure was relaxing, eating, drinking, being merry. And the abundance of riches that he stored up over time has enabled the life that would enable him to do that. Now, like some of you are looking at me like, wait, like what's so bad about that? He, he worked hard. He, he lived the American dream, right? He like worked hard. He saved up. He was able to retire. He was able to have this like this nest egg that was good. And like, what's, what's, what's so condemning about that? Isn't it his right to do what he wants with his money, to enjoy it the way that he sees fit? Actually, um, in First. In Corinthians 15, Paul uh, speaks to this and he said, you know, if there was no resurrection of the dead, if there was no life after this, if there was no hope of anything beyond what we see and feel in this temporal world, then sure, let's do it. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But then he goes on to say, and this is not a paraphrase, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. (laughs) Wake up. There is resurrection from the dead. There is life after this life. There is a hope that is beyond what we see and what we know in this world. And, and Paul is affirming what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying that one's life is not found in the abundance of his possessions. You might've heard it said before that money talks. Anybody heard that phrase, money talks? Yes. Um, I agree, money talks, but money lies. Money speaks lies to us. This principle is all over uh, God's word. Money lies to us by telling us that we need it, that we can only enjoy life to its fullest if we have money, if we have an abundance of money, and we work harder and harder to get more and more of it to satisfy the desires of our hearts in that way. And God's word is pretty clear about how this is a lie. Um, look at these couple of just these two passages here. First, Jesus in the parable of the soils. It says, as for that that was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Also, 1 Timothy 6, 9, 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some of us have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Money lies. Um, and in this rich man, in this parable, is called a fool because he's bought into, he believes the lie that his abundance of life was found in the abundance of his possessions and his treasures. That in his money, he had everything that he needed. So he's not called a fool for having riches. He's called a fool for treasuring his riches. Um, when I was a kid, I had a lot of little treasures. Um, I, I, I'm an Enneagram 7, if any of you are into the Enneagram. Uh, but when I was a kid, so I was like an enthusiast. What that means is like, I, if I find something that I'm into, I'm all into it. And so I had a big collection of sports cards, uh, mainly like hockey cards. I had video games. I had like for some random idea, like Coke bottles. I don't understand why I decided to collect like actual Coke bottles. But there was like a, a lot of money spent on these treasures, right? That I, money that I spent, money my parents spent on me, giving them to me. And, and here's the thing, eventually with each of those things, I lost interest in it. Like something newer, something shinier, something better caught my eye and got my attention. And that became my focus. And then I was all in on that. And, and to top it all off, um, when I, stepped out of the old life and into my new life of married life and I bought a house and um, my mom gave me a housewarming gift of all of the boxes of all of my old treasures. 
um, <clears throat> that I uh, that I decided to store in my bigger barn of my basement. Um, it was like, what am I going to do with all this? I don't want it. Because in comparison to the life that I, the new life that I had been given, the new life that I was living, the things that I thought were my treasures seemed useless, worthless. And I see this playing out in my kids' lives right now, right? Like, so generational sin, that's a real thing. Like, my boys will be out in the yard and collecting rocks or acorns or sticks and, like, want to hold onto them and bring them into the house. And, like, we find them in the washer and the different spots. Like, they just collect these treasures and you try to pull them out of their hands, they won't let it go because that's their treasure. And I, I, I think it's, the funny thing is, is that in this, it's easy to laugh about the ways that we, we do this as children, but if God calls us his children, if we call ourselves children of God, then obviously that means that we still have a few things to learn as adults, right? Some of these principles that were true then are also true for us now. And if we're honest with ourselves, um, I think this principle is hard for us even today, that the treasures that we lay up for ourselves here on this earth, what are they for you? What are the treasures that you're laying up? What are you pursuing in your life? What are you valuing? What are you saying like, this is what I need. If I had this, I would be happy. My life would be complete. If I could just get this, I'm working hard for it. And if I could just get this, I would be happy. What are those things? What are you dreaming about? Are you building a bigger barn? I think if we're honest uh, here in America, we've, um, we might be blind to some of the bigger barns that we've already built, right? Uh, the two or three stall barns in our, that we park our cars in, uh, the sheds that we have in our yards, the bank accounts that we have, the ways that we just have all these the storage units that we rent. seems like everywhere there's a new storage unit being built because there's a, this is a problem. We're laying up treasures for ourselves. We're, we're so focused on the things of this earth, but all for what? <clears throat> I was pretty convicted by uh, James 5.5 5 this week as I read this. Um, says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Man, I can't, um, how, how fat is my heart with the luxuries that I've treasured in it? <laughs> Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Um, I can't help but wonder if this man in this parable had actually seen God as his ultimate treasure and not the things that he had been given. Do you think that God would have still called him a fool if that was the case? I don't think so. Um, what if instead of saying, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, eat, drink, and be merry. What if instead of saying that, he said this, God, you have been so good and so generous to me. You are the one who has provided this increase. And because I treasure you more than anything that the world has to offer me, I want to use this blessing in a way that shows this to be true. You are enough for me. And what you have already done, given me is enough. I don't need a bigger barn. I don't need a bigger safety net because you are my security. I don't need better food or, or drink because the satisfaction that I crave is found only in you, my bread of life and my living water. Because you have taught me that it is far better to give than to receive. Would you make my heart merry as I receive the blessing that you have promised in being generous and allow me to care for the abundant needs of those around me out of the abundance that you have given me? Help me to live like you are the only abundant treasure that I could ever want or ever need. I think if he had said that, Instead of eat, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, I, I, I don't think God's calling him a fool in that case, right? Abundant life is not found in the abundance of treasures, but abundant life is only found when we see Jesus as our abundant treasure. We have to stop laying up treasures for ourselves. But let's keep going here. Um, next part of this passage, uh, verse 22 
Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, so this is not an independent text. I had a professor in college that said, whenever you come across a therefore in scripture, you have to ask what it's there for. And so like, you gotta look back. He's, he's building on this idea that he just talked about to present this new idea to the people that were listening. He says, I tell you, because of that, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Again, referencing back to the parable there. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. So don't, don't miss what's happening here in this passage. In the first part in the parable that Jesus told, he's addressing the danger of money and the way that it can fuel our greed or our desire for more. But here in this passage, he's talking about a different danger that money can present to us and that's finding our security in it, finding our hope, our comfort in, in, in what is given to us in our finances. So the second step that of this foolproof investment strategy to grow rich in God by being rich toward God, we've got to stop investing in our anxiety. This is a big deal right now. Um, I think in our culture, uh, just even talking in between services about the ways that anxiety is just ravaging our world. Um, Jesus in this passage is speaking specifically to the anxiety or to the fear of a lack of provision and um, Jesus, we said earlier, he's the author of life, but Satan is the author of lies. And I believe that one of the ways that he is most successful in lying to us right now is the way that he lies through our anxiety. He disguises our anxiety as this voice of reason that's like, oh, I've, I can figure it out. It's, it's, this is the reality. But that's not the case here. There's he, he's lying to us through that. And Jesus unpacks that for us in this. And so let's look at this. There's three lies that we believe to invest in our anxiety right here in this passage. First, the first lie that we believe, life is found in what I have. Man, how often do we look for security or peace or fulfillment in the things that we have? Man, if I could just afford to buy that bigger house with a little bit more rooms for my kids to run around, like a little bit more space, I'll be happy. Like I'll feel content. Man, I, my, my 55 inch TV is great, but like it's not 4K. And even though like television stations aren't even broadcasting in 4K yet, like I wanna be prepared for the day that they do. And so like I, I, if I could just get that 65 inch 4K t TV, then like I'll have everything I need. I'm set, I'm good to go, right? Or man, man, like if I could just have a house that had central air for those like three weeks in the summer that I actually need it here in Michigan, then like, then I'll be content. I'll be happy, right? Showing my cards here, these are all things that I've said in the last 18 months. So like this is for me just as much as for all of us, right? The problem with all of these things that they all eventually fade or they'll break, right? The bigger house is more to maintain, more things to remodel, more things to update. 
the 4K technology in the TV will one day give way to 8K technology and will become obsolete. And when we live our lives believing this lie, that life is found in what I have, it creates this mentality of like, I've got to get the next thing. The next thing is I'm always looking to the next thing that's going to satisfy the desires that I have, the needs that I have, the wants that I have. It's going to make me more efficient. It's going to make me more effective. And we're constantly scattered around trying to fulfill all of these needs and desires and the things that we have. No wonder we're anxious. But what Jesus is saying here is, He's speaking truth to this lie and says it plainly. True life is not found in what you have. He's calling us to seek something bigger, something higher, something better, something greater. What is it? As my dad used to say, hold your horses. Like, we'll get there in a second. Just wait, be patient. But, but we have to stop first investing in the lie that life is found in what we have. The second lie that we are believing in to invest in our anxiety is that God only loves the future version of me. I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I live with this mindset that like, I, that God is just kind of perpetually displeased with me as he sees like my heart and the wickedness and the sinfulness and the brokenness that he's just constantly d- displeased with me and I have to do more to earn his favor or to, to get in right standing with him. I gotta get, stay on my Bible reading plan. I gotta do all these things. <clears throat> but it's no wonder that that way of thinking also fuels our anxiety because ultimately we cannot measure up to the, uh, the perfect standards of a perfect God. But look at what Jesus says here in verse 24. Look at the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't work. They don't have a place to store the food that I give them. But guess what? I still feed them. I still give them what they need. And so if God loves the ravens who like aren't created in his image, who, who don't do a dang thing for him, but if he loves them enough to give them food every day so that when the raven wakes up, there's food for him to, to get, like how much more does he love you? How much more would he love you enough to provide and to be able to take care of you? How much more valuable are you than the birds? Well, look at the cross, right? <laughs> Jesus didn't die for the birds. He didn't die for the ravens. He died for you. And ultimately, he was willing to die for you while you were still a sinner. While I was still a sinner, he died for us. He gave himself up for us. And so ultimately, that's the only evidence that we ever need, that we don't have to clean ourselves up to earn anything from him. He just offers it to us freely. The provision that we need, he knows we need it, and he's willing to give it to us. He's given us new life in Christ. He'll give us food and clothing. We don't have to worry about that. And so how do we fight this lie? Uh, we speak truth of the immeasurable way that God has provided for us in the past while we were still sinners, while we were still messy and broken. And we believe that because his character is the same then as it is now that he will continue to provide for us in our temporal needs in this life. The third lie that we believe here um, that Satan tempts us with is that I'm in control. So anxiety lies to us by, by like promising to prepare us for the worst, right? So I've got to get like every possible scenario worked out in my head of what could go wrong and think about what my response would be in each of those scenarios. And so ultimately I have this illusion of like, I can be prepared and ready to face it if and when it comes. It's a false sense of control, right? But like on the surface, that doesn't seem like it's so bad, right? Like it's not bad to be prepared for things, but ultimately it's a, it's a futile, it's a futile purpose, a f- futile pursuit. It's a false sense of security. 
Look at verse 25. And which of you, by, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So Jesus is saying that worrying about your life, trying to control the, ac- the little aspects of your life, won't actually add to it. And this thing that Jesus is claiming has actually been backed up by science recently. I love it when that happens. But in 2012, researchers completed a 10-year study on the relationship between anxiety and life expectancy. And this study was published by the British Medical Journal. It found that people who were burdened, even by slight distress, meaning like sometimes they stay awake at night worrying or that sometimes they have focusing on simple tasks, that those people were about 20% more likely to die over that 10-year period than people who had no distress. And as the severity of distress increased, that percentage of likelihood to die also increased. So what science is saying, approving of what Jesus said to be true, is that not only can you not add to your life by worrying, but you can actually take away from your life by worrying. It's, it's, it's useless. It's, it's not worth our time to spend time worrying. We can't actually control these things. We, we have no ability to do it. Psalm 139.16 says that every one of our days is numbered. That I cannot add to the days that God has numbered for me. You cannot add to the days that God has numbered for you. It doesn't matter what diet plan you're on or workout plan or what preventative measures you're taking in a pandemic, any of that. It doesn't matter. Your days are numbered. And when God says, tonight your soul is required of you, it will be your, your day. We are not in control. And so Jesus is encouraging us to be like the ravens and to just wake up and trust that the provision will come and to believe that in that, he also wants to not, he also says, don't worry about the rest. So like with that, there's gonna be other things, not just provision, but but good things that he wants to give us as well that we don't have to worry about. Um, I loved this uh, Christmas. It was uh, the, like the first Christmas that my boys were actually able to like appreciate it and consciously be aware of what was happening around Christmas. They're two and a half. And um, it, was, it was amazing to see. Uh, so River, he, he, about a month ago, started saying like, I was like, what do you want for Christmas, River? He'd be like, Daddy, I want a big Wobot. A big Wobot. He, t- he told Santa that's what he wanted. He told everybody. It got to be like a week before Christmas. And I was like, Lord, we, ca- we kind of got to get him this big robot because he's, that's all he's been talking about. And so, this thing that he wanted, we gave it to him because we love to give good gifts to our children, just like God loves to give good gifts to us, right? And he opens it and immediately is terrified of it. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was really funny to me. Like it's a remote control robot. And so like we were trying to show him like, hey buddy, look, you can push the buttons and the robot moves. And he had this control in his hand and he was like pushing the, and when he pushed the button, the robot started to move towards him and he kept kind of like backing up. But in his like anxiety, like robot induced anxiety that he had, like he pushed the button and it like, it tightened his grip on the remote. So the robot's moving towards him and he's like holding it down. It's still chasing him. He's like, it was running around, just not able to escape it. And so what's, what's funny about that to me is like, he had this illusion of control. Like he thought that he was in control, but the control that he was given was actually increasing the anxiety that he felt about the gift that he was given. I, I love to uh, use my kids for illustrations in, um, in things like this because it reminds me that if my heart for them in a moment like that is to love them and to help teach them about their life and the world around them and I do it patiently and lovingly as an imperfect father that our perfect heavenly father looks down at us when we go through kind of the same things in our lives, let's be real, at a different scalable level and he loves us perfectly through that and so I find hope in that but the crazy part about this story is that uh, River's anxiety or his control that he had of 
over this robot actually prevented him from being able to fully enjoy the gift in the way that it was intended to be given to him. So not only did it increase his fear, but it also like took away from the fact that this is actually a really cool toy (laughs) for you to enjoy and to have and, and to love. In the same way for us, not only does our anxiety actually fail to give us the control that we want or desire or feel like we need, but it actually robs us from enjoying the things that we already have been given. It robs us of the ability to be present with the gifts that we have been given and to fully see them in the way that God has given them to us and to be able to enjoy to the way that he has invited us into enjoying. And so just like River found freedom and having the control pried out of his hands and his finger pried off of the, the button, we also can find freedom and rest when we allow God to do that for us, right? Sometimes that process is painful when he's wrestling that control out of our hands, but he's doing it in love. And when we finally let go of it, that's when we find our, our, our peace and our comfort and our rest and we can actually enjoy the gifts that he has given to us. And so the question I have for you this morning is, how much are you investing in your anxiety? In what ways have you given Satan access to your mind, to your heart, to believe the lies that he is speaking to you to fuel this growing debt of worry and anxiety in your life? Again, Jesus is calling us to invest in something greater and higher and better, but in order to do that, we have to first stop investing in our anxiety. So we stop laying up treasures for ourselves and we stop investing in our anxiety. Let's keep going, last point here this morning. Verse 31, instead, look, another transitional word here. So instead of seeking pleasure and laying up treasures for yourself, instead of seeking to find your security for money alone, seek his kingdom and these things that you want and desire will be added to you. So seek after the Lord and his kingdom, be rich toward God and the things that you are worried about will be added to you. That's a promise. Don't miss that. But God isn't just promising his provision, but he's also showing us his heart in his provision. Look at this next thing. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So just like I love to give a good gift to my son, God loves to give us good gifts as well. Now we're gonna jump back into the original story here in verse 33. So what are we to do with our inheritance? Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy Provide yourselves not with a bigger barn to store your stuff, but with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, where no robot has access, and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The third step in this foolproof investment strategy that God has given us, that Jesus has given us in this passage is, we've got to give generously to the kingdom. As we come uh, here to the end of this passage, I I think we find ourselves confronted with this question and I've kind of purposefully avoided it for this point here, but what does it actually mean for us to be rich toward God? If we grow rich in God by being rich toward God, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that we seek him with our whole hearts, holding nothing of this earth in our hands and seeing him as our true treasure as all that we could ever want or need. Uh, an- another way to put it could just be to say that we, we love what he loves and we treasure what he treasures. That's what it means to be rich toward God. But here's the thing, like simply loving and treasuring something in our hearts isn't enough, right? It, there's genuine love, it requires generous action. 
And I'm so thankful that God doesn't just call us to this and like say, hey, I need you to, to sh- prove your love to me by, by acting without having done it for us already. So these are familiar verses, but John three sixteen, For God, what? So loved the world that he, what? Gave. He showed his love by giving. First John three sixteen, the other three sixteen, maybe familiar with this. By this we know love that he what laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Genuine love requires generous action. Not convinced yet? I got one more for you. Um, this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and Paul here is speaking to the Corinthians, and he's encouraging them about the generosity that he received from the Macedonians who were in a ex- place of extreme poverty but were so generously giving to his mission. And look what he says. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He's talking about generosity here. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. How do we prove that our love is genuine? By being generous. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became, what? Poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I grow rich in God by being rich toward God. Genuine love requires generous action. If if the only evidence that I had of my love for my wife, who I have committed my life to and before friends and family, if I just said, you know, Laura, I love you with my whole heart. And that was it done like I, I i love her that's what i and, but there's no action to follow that it feels fake it feels cheap more than that if i was like hey lord i love you with my whole heart uh but i also really love uh watching live sports and um so i'm gonna pay a monthly fee to give uh generously to this streaming service so that i can watch live sports and um oh i also know that you wanted to like have a nice breakfast date next week and check out that new breakfast spot but i also bought tickets for the michigan state basketball game that week and so i don't think we're gonna be able to afford breakfast and so uh, maybe next month we can give it a try but uh not this week sorry but i love you doesn't that feel fake it feels cheap right in the same way when we um say that we love god without action it feels cheap So one of the ways that we can be rich toward God is by putting our money where our mouth is, literally, and use our earthly riches to show how valuable that he is to us. How do we do that? Well, look at verse 33. Look what it says there. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Whew, okay. Um, that's That's a lofty standard, right? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. God's heart is very near to the poor and the needy. There are over, we don't have near the time that I would love to spend here, but there are over 2,000 verses in scripture speaking of God's heart for the poor and the needy, ways to care for them, ways to fight for justice for them. It is all over his word. It is very, Jesus himself was born into poverty. The poor and needy are very close to God's heart, but he also treasures and loves his church. 
First Peter 2, 9 says that we are a people for his possession, like we are his treasure. Ephesians 5.25 says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid himself down, gave himself up for her. Love following, or action following love there. And later in in Ephesians 5.29, Paul says, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So Christ treasures the church. He nourishes and cherishes the church. That's the action that follows the love that he had for it. And so what does it mean for us to be rich toward God? We give generously to the needy and we nourish and cherish his church. So let's make this super practical for us this morning. What does uh, generosity, what does generously giving to the kingdom look like? Proverbs 3, 9 says that we are to honor God with the first fruits of our wealth and that when we do that, our barns will be filled with plenty. And so not only does God uh, like delight in the first fruits, giving him our best efforts, the thing off the top, our, our very best, but he also delights in it enough to reward it. That's also a scriptural principle. But if we want to be generous towards God, we have to give him our first fruits. And there's three areas that we can give him our first fruits. If you've been around our church, Pastor Jeremy talked about this in announcements, but there's three T's that we like to refer to in the ways that we can be generous. I'm gonna go through this quickly here as we, as we get to the end here, but we can be generous with our time. Um, basic math, just some simple math here. There are 168 hours in a week. Now, if you are one of the weirdos that actually gets eight hours of sleep every single night, um, that would leave you with uh, 112 conscious awake hours a week. Um, let's give, I'll be generous in the spirit of generosity and we'll, uh, we'll give a couple of extra hours for the coffee to kick in and let's round that to 110 hours a week, right? So 110 conscious awake hours a week. Now, if you subtract a 45-hour work week from that, that leaves you with what? Math people? 65. 65 hours of what I would say discretionary hours a week that where you're not sleeping and you're not working. What are we doing with it? Where is it going? That, that, that comes out to 3,380 hours a year. What are we doing with it? In the same way that it's responsible for us to like regularly audit our budgets to see where we're spending money in the wrong places and how can we cut and be better stewards of our budgets, we should be doing the same thing with our time. Where can I better use my time to serve God and his kingdom? How can I better, what what I need to cut out of my time to be better at the way that I am serving and to give him my first fruits, the best efforts of my time. Not what's left over at the end, but the best On top of that, um, our weekly 90-minute church service that we have here, uh, that comes out to about 2% of those discretionary hours and less than 1% of all of the time that we are given in, in this life. So if one of the ways that we can be rich toward God is by cherishing and nourishing his church, can I honestly say that I'm effectively doing that? If I'm cherishing and nourishing his church by showing up to church, sitting on the sidelines for less than 1% of the time that I've been given? Is that what that looks like, really? Hey, I went to church today. I guess I'll check off the seek his kingdom box. Like, no, I don't, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's the standard. I think we're called to more. We're giving, we were called to give him the, the first fruits, the best of our time. What does how I spend my time say about what I treasure? And what would it look like for me to be more generous to God and others with my time? But the next one here is talents. And so we've said this often here in our church that you were created on purpose for a purpose. 
Every person in this room was given a unique gift by God who gives good gifts to be able to use to build his kingdom in this community. Nobody else in the world has your gift. I know the, the snowflake idea kind of has a bad rep these days, but, but for real, like just like there's no two snowflakes that are alike, there are no two gifts that are alike. And so if you look at this church, if you come and you're like, well, it seems like, like I'm gifted in this area, but it seems like it's already being covered by this person over here. No, no, no. Like the way that you've been gifted in that way is different than them. And you have something special and unique that is needed here. And the, the unique personality that God has given you is for the purpose of building up his kingdom in this community. And he wants you to be using the first fruits of your talents to serve him and his church. So what does that look like? Are the first fruits of our talents, are we, are we developing them? Are we trying to, to cultivate and grow our talents or are we just content with the way that they are? There's ways that we can give God the first fruits of our time and our talents. And I, I, th- I believe he's calling us to be generous in that. He's calling all of us to be generous with that. Lastly, treasure. So if the heart is to give God our first fruits, then... Um, the starting place, the biblical principle here that we see established in scripture is 10% off the top, right? Now, this is not a commanded amount um, in scripture, but it is a a, a principle that was established in the Old Testament that we give 10% to the church, to the temple. Um, And Jesus actually affirmed this in Matthew 23 as well. But if our posture is one of humility, just hear me in this, hear my heart in this, and I believe this is God's heart too, but if our posture is, humility and we say that all of these things that I have been given are given to me by God and really they were all his to begin with every cent that I have was his to begin with and he gave it to me the fact that he would invite us to keep 90% of that is is incredibly generous right I would argue that um our focus with our giving shouldn't be necessarily nitpicking on the amount that we should be tithing but about the heart and the manner in which that we do that what you do with every cent that you are given reveals what you believe to be true about God. It reveals how much you treasure him, not just in the way that you give to the church, but in every aspect of your life. What do you treasure? If you wanna know what you treasure, just follow the money. See where it goes. Those are the things that you value. And so this leads us to a very practical question this morning, which is, does the way that I spend my money and use my money line up with how I treasure God? how I value him, how much have I reserved for him? Is it what's left over at the end or is it the first fruits that he's called me to give him? So you can say all the right things. You can go to all the right events. You can be part of every community group, Bible study, whatever it is. You can invest in all these different ways in the church, but you wanna know where your treasure is, where your heart is? Follow your time, follow your talents and follow your treasures. It'll lead you to where your heart really is with those things. Jesus is calling us to give generously to the kingdom. But here's, here's the thing about that. You can't give generously when you are so occupied with managing and laying up treasures for yourself. Can't do it. So we gotta stop doing that. We gotta stop laying up treasures for ourselves. I can't give generously to the kingdom. I can't invest in what God has called me to invest in if I'm investing in my anxiety, if I'm worried about what's to come. That doesn't free me up to, to be generous. So we have to stop investing in our anxiety. Generosity will only flow from a heart that has seen Jesus as our ultimate treasure and believes that he will provide everything that we could ever need or want. So we give generously to the kingdom. We grow rich in God 
by being rich toward God. And so what do we do with this story? As we find ourselves here at the end, what do we do with this today? What are we called to? Uh, oh, I'm not calling you to go and return all of your Christmas presents. Um, I'm also, we're not gonna take an offering here. This is, that's not my heart. We're not here to manipulate or coerce anything like that. That's not, please hear my heart with that. But what I do wanna do is kind of paint a picture for us of what I believe um, has been convicting me this week of what this church has the potential to be. And it's a threefold picture. There's three parts. And when all these things work together, it, it, it becomes a beautiful thing. So follow along with me on this. First, if you and I, as the body of Christ, were to believe that Jesus is our ultimate treasure, if we were to find our true and full ultimate treasure in him alone, Two, if you and I were to believe the truth that we see taught in scripture and allow ourselves to be convicted by it, that we give our money to the things that we value, our time and our talents, we give all of those things to the things that we value. And three, if we believe that this church, this local body is an essential agent for the work of building God's kingdom here on earth and in our community. If we believe those things to be true and we allow those three things to work together, then I believe that we will have everything that we could ever possibly need to effectively live out the mission that God has sent before us to make disciples of all nations who love God and who love others. But more than that, we won't just be effective on mission. We will see that every single need in this house is cared for completely abundantly and not depending upon the leadership of the church to do it but out of the abundant generosity of the people the family of God pouring out their generosity to each other and making it their aim to care for each other and to love each other can you imagine if that thing is working in that potential what kind of a witness that would have to the world around us as the people look in and see this body so committed to the Lord so committed to treasuring him so committed to each other that the generosity is just flowing freely from our hearts to him and to each other. I believe that's what God's calling us to. I believe that he's calling you to that. I believe he's calling me to that. That's what it would look like for us to treasure what he treasures and to really love what he loves. We grow in God. We go rich in God by being rich toward God. And so, are you in? You want in on this investment opportunity? I know I do. <laughs> the fact is you're still here. There's still time for you to get in. I hope that you do. Let's pray together. God, you have been so good and so generous to us. There's so much that we just even fail to comprehend in the ways that you have provided above and beyond that we could ever need or imagine or think of and, and you give it freely and God I just pray um, for our church for each person here for my own heart that we would just allow these words to convict us God that your spirit would be working in us to, to see the ways that we are holding on to the treasures of this earth claiming them as our own to see the ways that we are investing in our worry and our fears of being provided for and to let go of our control there, to believe that you are in control and that you love us and would desire to give us everything that we could ever need or imagine. God, I pray that that would be um, 
true in our hearts so that ultimately we would be a people that would be marked by our generosity for each other and for the world. And so God, would you do that in us? Would you do that through us? And we'll give you all the glory as you work. It's in your name we pray, amen.